I want to do something this morning that I don't often do. And that is, I'm going to preach a sermon I've already preached before. It's not the sermon I preached last week. (laughs) I was looking in my book, and I preached this sermon five years ago. How many of you remember it? (laughs) Yeah. But if you've taken notes in your Bible and you see notes that, how come I've already written that down? That might be why. But we're in a month uh, where we're talking about making decisions for Christ. And we want people to make decisions for Jesus. We've been praying about that. We've been talking with some people. We've been encouraging that. But do you know what you're getting yourself into? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? And that's the subject this morning, counting the cost. From the 14th chapter of Luke, you can turn there, Luke chapter 14, Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee. And as with most of these religious leaders, they're looking for a way to attack Jesus and to discredit him in the eyes of the people. Jesus has been riding this enormous wave of popularity, and all kinds of people have been following him. But the Pharisees and religious leaders were looking, watching Jesus, trying to find him breaking one of their laws, one of their rules, one of their traditions, so they could discredit him before the people. They were jealous of his popularity. Several times in the scripture it says that they sought for a way to kill him. So while at this Pharisee's house, Jesus does break one of their traditions by healing a man who suffered from dropsy. At least that's what the New American Standard Version calls it. It wasn't wrong for Jesus to heal the man as long as he did it on some other day. But this, of course, was the Sabbath day. And according to the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, you couldn't work on the Sabbath day and healing was considered work. Now, if a person's life was in jeopardy, if they would die before the next day, you could do enough to get them through to the next day, but that was all you could do. You couldn't really do a lot according to their rules. You could stabilize them, get them through to the next day, and then you could really care for them. But Jesus just heals the man, and there was nothing they could do about it and really nothing that they could say. So that's in the first six verses. You get down to verse 7, and Jesus notices at this Pharisee's house with the other invited guests how they were all picking the places of honor at the table. In that day, wherever the host would sit, the, the most important person, all right, the next important place was to his right, and then to his left, then to his right, then to his left. And so the closer you could set up to there, those were the most important seats. And Jesus was noticing them picking out those most important places. He tells them, choose the place of least honor. In other words, set at the end of the table. Because if they chose the place of the most honor... Someone more important than them might come in. They'll be asked to give up their seat, move to a lower place, and they'll be embarrassed and humiliated in front of everyone. But if they sit at the very end, the place of least honor, they might be told, oh, you need to set up closer. 
You're more important than that. And you will be honored in the presence of those there. But then he tells the host to do something that might be considered strange in verse 12 and following. He said, the next time you give a luncheon or a dinner, invite the poor and needy people. Invite people here that can't repay you. And then let the Lord reward you in his way and in his time. In verse 15 and following, after Jesus said this, one of those at the table said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, how true. How true. And then he goes on to tell them that everyone there is invited to that feast, but few of them will accept the invitation. And even today, folks, we can invite and invite many people to come and to learn of Christ and accept Him as Lord and Savior, but few will accept that invitation. And they will make excuse after excuse after excuse, just like the people in the parable Jesus told. Don't let that get you down. You keep on inviting and sowing the seed. So the feast comes to a close, and Jesus leaves that Pharisee's house. And large crowds are traveling with Jesus, it says in verse 25, probably wondering what he's going to do next. They're following him out of emotionalism and sensationalism and because of his popularity. Jesus knows that. And so in verse 25, it says, he turned and said to them. And the Greek word for turn there is the word strapheis. And it means to turn suddenly, all at once. He just wheels about on them so unexpectedly, all right? There is intent in what he is going to say. There is intent in, in, in just the very manner as he turns around. And he lays down before all of these large crowds the gauntlet of total commitment. Total commitment. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he, sits, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we're in a month where we're emphasizing people making decisions. And this text may seem self-defeating. Why would you preach on this and tell people how hard it is 
we're want, when we're wanting them to make decisions for Christ? Well, you need to count the cost. We don't want half-hearted followers. We need people that are totally sold out to Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us what it takes here in this text. He's looking out over this sea of faces and probably could see very few whose minds and lives were truly committed to him. This was an impulsive crowd that was spread around him, following on feelings probably more than anything else. But Jesus wanted thinking, intelligent, logical people, and yet people of faith. He he wanted far-sighted, serious soldiers in his army. And so Jesus uses some language here that would sift the multitudes and blow the chaff away. Notice again, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate, pretty strong word. My version of the Bible actually includes a footnote there. I don't know if yours does. But the footnote for that verse says, hate by comparison of his love for me. In comparison to our love for Jesus, it would almost seem as if it were hate. In fact, Matthew puts it this way, records Jesus' words this way in Matthew 10, 37 and 38. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So this relationship with family, which is so important in our lives, cannot take priority over our relationship with Christ. He must come first. Above all, and to the worldly mentality, and maybe to you too, those are shocking words. Maybe severe words. But listen, to be a disciple of Jesus, you must prepare to choose Him over every one of life's dearest relationships. And you might think, well, that's impossible. I I can't put God above my family. I can't put Christ above my family. That's asking too much. It can't be done. Well, yes, it can be done. And it must be done if you want to be his disciple. In fact, I think the Bible gives us a wonderful example of someone who did that. And it was the subject of one of our Sunday school lessons recently. Found in Genesis chapter 22, where God calls Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. You remember the story. They, God tells him, this is what I want you to do. Abraham gets up the next morning, takes off with Isaac and two other servants, goes to the land of Moriah. He and Isaac go on alone to that place. And Abraham binds his son, places him on that altar, raises his hand to kill him, probably with his hand upon Isaac's head. And if God hadn't stopped him at that moment, I believe he would have done it. He would have killed his son. 
The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that even if he did it, that God could bring his son back from the dead again. He did it by faith. You see, Abraham is called the father of the faithful because he believed in God, that God could even raise his son from the dead. He loved God more than his own son. And he was willing to sacrifice him simply because God said to do it. So don't tell me that you can't do it. Don't tell me that you can't love God, you can't love Jesus more than even your own family. It can be done. And Jesus says it must be done to be his disciple. The world doesn't think like that, does it? I, it, it doesn't. I mean, when a choice has to be made between God and, and your family or Jesus and your family or, or the church and your family, the church being the body of Christ, most people are going to choose family. And yes, the Bible teaches and strongly advocates love of family. And so the fact that Christ insists that he must have first priority, that tells us this is a pretty serious matter. The terms of Christian discipleship may seem overwhelming, but there can be no higher loyalty than that which Jesus requires. And if there's ever a conflict between the highest and dearest earthly love, then we have to deny that and follow him. So, Jesus teaches here that he takes priority over family. We want you to follow Jesus. We want you to make decisions for him. But understand, he takes priority over family. That's a part of counting the cost. Then, in verse 27, when you count the cost, Jesus associates discipleship with cross-bearing. With cross-bearing. Now, the cross was the repulsive, terrifying, certain instrument of execution in the Roman world. A, a, a terrible way to die. When a person was given a cross to bear, it was a one-way ticket to death. They were certain they were on their way to death, an excruciatingly painful death. Well, to be a disciple of Jesus means death. Death to self. We take ourself off the throne of our life. And put Jesus there. It's death to our ego. It's a death to self. It means emptying one's life of everything that is selfish. Because Christ was the totally selfless one. And we must imitate that. It means choosing death to self and desiring Christ's life over our own life. Taking up a cross, that means total commitment. You're totally sold out to that. And we live in a world that wants convenience Christianity and not commitment Christianity. It's not easy to be a Christian. Jesus never promised that it would be. It can involve pain and struggle and surrender and certainly death to self-rule. But following Jesus is not just suffering. There are a lot of people who suffer and they just glorify themselves in it. But bearing the cross, that, that's not just giving up bad habits. It's that, it's that sacrifice of self. Taking self off the throne. The surrender of all supposed rights to determine what we're going to do and what we're going to think and what we're going to be. And the great example of that is Jesus. 
who Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but did what? Emptied himself. That's what it takes. Emptying ourselves. The death to self. And if Christian discipleship involves the ultimate cost, death to self, then it's imperative that it not be entered into lightly or hastily or flippantly or unadvisedly. Christian discipleship involves decisions for eternity. It demands, therefore, reasonableness and honesty and humility and faith. So Jesus illustrates that with two short parables. And in these two parables, he is illustrating this truth. He's requiring would-be disciples to count the cost by illustrating the momentous calling of discipleship. You see, Jesus is building the church, a a, a living temple, a a living house with living stones, all right, an eternal temple, if it if you would. He's fighting a life and death battle against the strongest of foes, against Satan and the forces of evil. And Christian discipleship is no place for the half-hearted. Jesus is seeking a few good men. I guess like the Marines, all right? Far too wise to pride himself in a mere number of converts. I think Jesus is more concerned with quality than he is with quantity because he can't stand the counterfeit the weak-minded, the double-minded, the superficial. I listen from time to time to other preachers and, and not trying to be too critical, it's interesting how many of them seem to cover up the severity of discipleship to Christ. How many of them make out like the Christian life is easy? How many of them seem to downplay the everything unpleasant about about following Christ? And they seem to use deceitful tactics to try to lure people. But Jesus, on the other hand, went out of his way to sift disciples. Brutally frank and honest and challenging would-be followers. And again, you may think, well, Bill, isn't this self-defeating to continually emphasize the difficulties of following Jesus? Many people would think so. But should we simply say nothing about the straight and narrow way as we try to reach more people? I mean, would it not be better to get as many enlisted as possible without worrying about their level of commitment? Not if we take Jesus as our guide. It's better never to enlist a single disciple than to enlist a half-hearted one or a non-committed one. Jesus doesn't want reckless, carefree, spur-of-the-moment enlistments. He discouraged half-hearted enlistments. He was negative about superficiality. And if you read in the book of Revelation about the church at Laodicea where people were lukewarm, he said, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth, Revelation 3.16. That's why Jesus warns us to count the cost. Count the cost. We want you to make decisions for Christ. 
We're praying about that. But count the cost. So notice the two parables Jesus tells in verses 28 through 33. And the parable of the tower, the point is that the builder was not able to finish it because he didn't count the cost. He ran out of money before he could complete it. In Jesus' time, Herod and his family did a lot of massive building projects throughout the land. Places that were just absolutely amazing. The remains of many of them have been found. And just the architecture and the immensity uh, of some of the things they built were amazing. I suspect that there were others at that time that probably tried to imitate them and found out they didn't have the will nor the funds to finish. So I would imagine that there were probably several unfinished towers that were scattered throughout the land, monuments testifying of the nearsighted, half-hearted efforts of foolish and emotional people. But in the case, the parable here of the kings going to war, the king with the smaller army realized he didn't have a fighting chance against the larger army. That too might have been taken from the history of the times. Herod was not faithful to his first wife, who was the daughter of Eratos. Eratos was a powerful Arabian king. And so they divorced, and Eratos, the father of Herod's divorced wife, declared war on Herod. And the result was disaster for Herod. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Herod's entry into that war was the beginning of the end for him. Now, so in this parable, you can either fight or run or talk. If you aren't big enough to fight and you can't afford to run, you'd better start talking. And the point is, before you get into a fight, you'd better consider carefully if you have what it takes to finish it. So make the application. What's Jesus saying? Before you choose to follow me, you better count the cost and see if you've got what it takes to follow me. Do you have what it takes to run the course and to finish that fight? Do you have what it takes to stick it out for the long haul? It's the faithful not the flashy, that'll be saved. And we can sit here this morning and say, well, yes, we love Jesus, but do we love him more than we love our family? I mean, if we had to, would we be willing to choose Jesus over a family member? Could you choose Jesus over your father and mother? Could you choose Jesus over your spouse? Could you choose Jesus over your children? Oh, it gets tough there. Could you choose Jesus over your grandchildren? Over a brother or a sister? Don't ask my sisters that. I'm afraid of what they'd say. All right. Yeah, we love Jesus, but do we love him more than we love ourselves? And if we love him more than we love ourselves, why do we sin? Why do we skip church? Why do we read other types of material more than we read the scriptures? 
Yeah, we love Jesus, but would we be willing to give up all of our possessions in order to follow him? If we lived in a country where it was illegal to be a Christian and we could lose our job, what would we choose? Jesus or our job? Yeah, we love Jesus, but if our offering was no longer tax deductible, would we still give a generous offering? Yes, we love Jesus, but are we willing to take up our cross and suffer for him? Yes, we love Jesus, but are we willing to die for him? Jesus asks much if we follow him. He asks for everything. Everything. If he died for us, he expects us to be willing to die for him. Folks, Jesus is not a hobby. Jesus is not a part of our lives. He is our life. And Jesus says in verse 33, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. To give up everything doesn't mean we just throw away the things over which God has placed us as stewards, but it means that not one of those things or all those things together are to have first priority in our lives. And those things include families and friends as well as properties and possessions. Any person not willing to pay that price cannot be Christ's disciple. The world asks the question, does he have what it takes to win? In the church, God asks, has he given up everything to be saved? The world calls us to gain. Christ calls us to die. So Jesus concludes his teaching by saying in verses 34 and 35, Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in counting the cost, understand we have to be functional. We have to function. You see, a true disciple of Jesus is not merely a follower. He is a functioning follower. Salt that does not function is worthless. And salt is absolutely essential to life. Medical science knows that a patient that is continually given liquids without salt content soon will have all of the salt flushed out of their body and they are in danger of death by water poisoning. It can happen. Salt is essential to life. Salt seasons, salt preserves. Disciples of Jesus that have no tang, no bite, who give the world no preserving functions, they're worthless. What good is a mountain of granules if they're saltless? I mean, what good is a mountain of disciples if they don't function. It's no wonder Jesus sought quality rather than quantity. Folks, evangelism in our churches today tries to draw big crowds and masses of people. And certainly we want people to make decisions for Jesus. Evangelism today seeks to be consumer friendly and to try not to offend anyone. But when I see what Jesus says... 
It seems like true evangelism ought to sift out the chaff from the wheat. It's the very nature of the gospel to sift. So but don't be discouraged when few decide to enlist. Remember the parable of the soils? Rocky soil. The hard path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. Makes it sound like there's a one in four chance of somebody responding to the gospel. Makes it sound like the percentages are low. And listen, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So folks, there will be more people lost than saved. There will be more people in hell than in heaven. And the reason will be that they were unwilling to pay the price of being a true disciple of Jesus. What about you? Do you have what it takes? Jesus is saying, consider ahead of time whether or not you're willing to become his follower. Because it's going to take everything you have and more. Discipleship will figure in every future decision of your life. The will of God will be first in your priority from now on. And if you don't have the ability or the willingness to give following Jesus your all, don't start. Don't move toward a battle that you're going to surely lose. Figure out your resources and what you're willing to commit ahead of time. And if you don't have what it takes, don't commit your forces. Without enough strength, they're going to be chewed up and destroyed. A halfway commitment will not be adequate. It's all or nothing. All or nothing. And you see that attitude personified in some of these disciples. Peter, James, and John, they leave their nets in chapter 5, verse 11. Levi leaves his lucrative tax collecting business in chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Zacchaeus was willing to give half of his fortune to the poor in chapter 19 and verse 8. But on the other hand, the rich young ruler was unwilling to renounce his wealth, turned away from Jesus, and walked sadly away in chapter 18, verse 22. What is there that would keep you from following fully? Jesus looked at this large crowd traveling with him. And if he were to look at us today, I think he would say, your allegiance to me must be complete. Every other allegiance must pale before it. You must be constantly ready to die for me if necessary as you follow me. You must count the cost before you start to determine if you're committed enough to follow me. And if you realize you aren't, don't begin. You must give up everything you have to follow me. And you must retain the distinctive flavor of uncompromised disciples. I wonder what the crowd said that day, what they did. What's more important is what will you do? What will you do? We want you to make decisions this month for Jesus. We want at any time for you to make a decision for Christ. But do you have what it takes? Matthew suffered martyrdom being killed with a sword in Persia. 
Mark died in Alexandria after being bound and dragged through the streets. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, yet miraculously escaped, and then later was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem, and James the Less was beaten and stoned to death by a mob. Bartholomew was flayed alive in Armenia. Andrew was hung on a cross for three days while he preached the gospel to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death at Salonica. And Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, finally beheaded in Rome by the Emperor Nero. Did they have what it took to follow Jesus? Yes, they did. Do you? Do you? It takes everything. And you need to count the cost. Do we want you to make decisions to follow Jesus? Yes, we do. Do we want you to have eternal life in Christ by repenting of sin and obeying the gospel? Yes, we do. If you've already done that, do we want you to hopefully identify with this congregation and serve hand in hand with us here at New Hope? Yes, we do. But count the cost. Count the cost. This message is not intended to discourage anyone from following Jesus. But you need to know what you're getting into and what it takes to follow him. We come to a decision time today. Very simple song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Those disciples didn't turn back. I pray you won't either. If you have any decisions that you want to make known publicly today, I encourage you to meet me down front as we stand and sing. Whether it be decisions to accept Christ for the first time as Lord and Savior, or a decision just to become his disciple and begin to learn about him. Maybe you've already obeyed the gospel, but you're ready to call New Hope your home and you want to make that known to the people here. You can meet me down front and we can make that known to our people. Maybe you've drifted away from the Lord and maybe you haven't been following him fully, fully committed. And you need to repent of that and come back to him. You can make that known and ask for the prayers and support of brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever decision you need to make, take that next step as we stand and sing.